Good morning and welcome to our gathering. Last Sunday we launched our new series in the book of Daniel and we dealt with the introduction. I was planning to teach through chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 which we just had read for you but then I discovered that there are 12 different people and places mentioned in that section and I think that they deserve more time and attention Uh, So I'm going to focus on them this morning rather than just do an exposition of the text. Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. But for now, we're going to look at 12 people and places from chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, The title of this message is People and Places, and uh, it'd be befitting to, to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get to work. Father... Open our hearts and minds to the truth. Teach us about these people and places. Help to build more context for the book of Daniel, um, more of a foundation um, as we move forward into the book. We need to know who some of these main characters, people, and places are. And so help to to make that happen this morning for us and um, be glorified in all that is said during this time. Teach us, humble us, help us to be focused. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with the first person. And we see him in verse 1, and his name is Jehoiakim. His original name was Eliakim. Uh, He is the second son of Josiah, who became king of Judah at age 8 and who ruled for 31 years. Josiah was one of Judah's good and godly kings. Some of the things that he did, he recovered and restored the word of God to the people of God. Uh, For various reasons, the word of God had sort of uh, become lost during this time, and and the people were acting lost. And um, a copy of the word of God, the scrolls, as it were, were found in, in part of the temple or somewhere like that, and Josiah said, hey, let's, let's put the Word of God back out there. And so he brought the Word of God back to the people of God, and they began to live according to the Word of God uh, for the first time in a long time. Josiah also restored the Passover, uh, which had not been celebrated for, for a long time as well, and that was a central holiday to the Jews, their primary holiday, if you will. He also rebuilt the temple because it had been attacked many times and needed to be renovated. Um, He issued reforms that transformed his kingdom to its former godliness and glory. So Josiah was a very, very good king, one of the better kings. Now, after he was killed in battle against the Egyptians, uh, the people of the land of his kingdom appointed his son, Jehoahaz uh, to the throne, and he ruled over Judah for only three months. Uh, Pharaoh Necho deposed Jehoahaz and replaced him with Eliakim, whom he renamed Jehoiakim. And that, of course, is the man that we are focusing on here. Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years. That would be 609 B.C. to 598 B.C., 2 Kings 23, verse 37, gives us an insight about him. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So he was an evil king. He did not live according to God's law and statutes, and he set a poor example for the people. The ATS Bible uh, Dictionary says that his kingdom was characterized by luxury, extortion, and idolatry, and that he also, it also says this of him, that he despised the warnings of the primary prophet of his day, uh, which was the prophet Jeremiah. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem and carried off many people and valuables, he worked out a deal with the current king, with Jehoiakim. He made him his tributary and left him in Jerusalem as his tributary and sort of representative or liaison. But three years years later, Jehoiakim broke his allegiance and Nebuchadnezzar sent armies to destroy the city and kill him. And he was eventually captured, he was killed, and he was also drugged through the streets of Jerusalem and then buried next to a donkey carcass, uh, which is horrible. So that's Jehoiakim. Secondly, uh, we notice Judah in verse 1. Judah is um, more of a place Uh, During the reigns of King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, Israel was a single kingdom made up of 12 tribes, which were like 12 counties or districts. But when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, succeeded him as king, the 10 northern tribes rejected him, and Israel split into two kingdoms. You had the, the kingdom of Israel, and that was 10 tribes to the north, and the kingdom of Judah, two tribes to the south. The Israelites formed their capital city in the city of Samaria, and the Judeans kept their capital in Jerusalem. Now, Rehoboam desired to rule over all of Israel like his father had done, and and I don't think that he wanted to do that for godly reasons. I think that he was into power, and he wanted the resources from those other tribes. And so he wanted to to rule over it all as his father had done and as his grandfather, King David, had done. So he tried to bring the tribes back together into one kingdom, but he was unsuccessful. And this led to war. 1 Kings 12, 21 says, When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Now the trouble is, is that Rehoboam wasn't successful and the separation continued on and on and on. He was never able to, to join all the tribes under his rule and reign. 200 years later after his death, in 721 B.C., The Assyrians sacked and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and that separation that you had between these two kingdoms, it ended. After Israel, the, the kingdom of Israel fell, the Assyrians attacked the kingdom of Judah, but they were unsuccessful. It says in the scripture that uh, the Lord upheld Judah and Judah survived because the Lord, uh, he intervened. A little over a hundred years later in 612 BC, Babylon conquered Assyria 
and acquired the northern uh, kingdom Israelites who had been exiled uh, and who had been planted in cities like Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. In terms of faithfulness to God, if we were to try to measure that, Judah was occasionally faithful, while Israel was nearly never faithful. So these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, one was somewhat faithful, the other one was never faithful to God. A total of 40 kings ruled over both kingdoms. Out of Israel's 20 kings, only one was what we would consider decent, and that was King Jehu. And King Jehu was assigned the difficult task of stamping out the family of Ahab, who was one of the worst kings. But Jehu really wasn't a godly king. He was a military leader, and he was a better king than the other 19, but he really wasn't a very good dude. The rest of the kings were truly ungodly and wicked, especially King Omri and King Ahab, whom I just mentioned. Out of Judah's 20 kings... Eight were good, especially Josiah, Jehoiakim's dad. But Judah's faithfulness, although it was occasional, it did not last. After Josiah died, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, became a harlot like Israel. It gave itself over to idolatry and to luxury and to sin and these sorts of things. As we learned, King Jehoiakim did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And his people followed his ungodly example. Now God warned them, this king and the people, through his prophets, but they refused to listen. They didn't care for the the harsh message that was coming from the prophets to turn and to repent and to turn back to God. They didn't want anything to do with that. They didn't want to hear it. They just wanted their sin. They wanted to keep doing what they were doing. They didn't listen. Because of this, God sent Babylon into Judah to do what the Assyrians were not able to do earlier. Babylon invaded the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem, conquered it, and carried off many of her people and valuables. And that is what we are looking at in our text. That is what is happening in verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 2 of chapter 1 of Daniel. Number 3, Nebuchadnezzar. And we see his name mentioned in verse 1 as well. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylonia from approximately 605 B.C. until 562 B.C. He is considered the greatest king of the Babylonian Empire. Apparently there were several kings and he was the greatest one that that particular empire had ever seen. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned by name about 90 times in the Bible, in both the historical and prophetic literature of the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar receives the most attention in the book that we're studying, that we're beginning to study, that is, the book of Daniel, appearing as the main character beside Daniel in chapters 1 through 4. In biblical history, Nebuchadnezzar is most famous for the conquering of Judah and later destruction of Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. (coughs) Judah had become a tribute state to Babylon in 605 B.C., but rebelled in 597 B.C., 
during the reign of Jehoiakim's son and successor, Jehoiachin. And then again in 588 B.C., during the reign of King Zedekiah. Tired of the rebellions and seeing that Judah had not learned its lesson, Nebuchadnezzar and his general, Nebuzaradan, proceeded to completely destroy the temple and most of Jerusalem, deporting most of the remaining residents to Babylon. When we think of the Babylonian exile, or we would call it the Babylonian captivity, we need to know that it happened in three phases. Uh, The first phase is what we're reading about in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There was another phase, and then there was a third and final phase. In coming against Judah and Jerusalem, uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically served as God's instrument of judgment because of the idolatry and because of the unfaithfulness of that kingdom and because of that of the, the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's crowning achievement was the hanging gardens which he built in Babylon during the Babylonian exile of the Jews. And it wouldn't surprise me if he actually had Jews do the labor, similar to how the Egyptians had Jews do labor during that time. The hanging gardens became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So that's Nebuchadnezzar. Number four, uh, we see Babylon in verse 1. It's a place. Babylon is one of the most famous cities of antiquity. Babylon was originally founded in southern Mesopotamia, uh, that would be modern-day Iraq, by a fellow named Nimrod, who was a great-grandson of Noah. Although Babylon didn't rise to prominence until 1830 B.C., some of the earliest Babylonian dynasties date all the way back to 2800 B.C. Long time. This is before the time of Abraham. During the 21st century B.C., the Amorites, who were a people group of that day, they began to dominate in Mesopotamia. 700 years later, the most famous Amorite king of all time ascended the throne in Babylon. In 1792 B.C., Hammurabi became king and quickly transformed the city into one of the most powerful and influential in all of Mesopotamia. Hammurabi's law codes are well known, but are only one example of the policies he implemented to maintain peace, and to encourage prosperity in his kingdom. He enlarged and heightened the walls of his city. Uh, He engaged in great public works, which included opulent temples and canals. And he made diplomacy an integral part of his administration. So successful was he in both diplomacy and war that by 1755 B.C., He had united all of Mesopotamia under the rule of Babylon, which at this time was the largest city in the world. And what did he do? What did he name his kingdom or this entire area that he ruled over? He gave it the name Babylonia. So he basically named it after his chief city. Now after Hammurabi died, Babylon was weakened 
and eventually sacked by three different people groups. You have the Hittites, you have the Kassites, and you have the Assyrians, whom I'm sure we're more familiar with. The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, who is mentioned in Scripture, completely destroyed Babylon and scattered its ruins to teach the locals a lesson. But some of his own people thought that his actions were impious. They thought that his actions were out of bounds because this city was beautiful. It was basically the greatest city in the entire world and it was filled with opulence and art and valuables. And this guy completely destroyed the whole thing as if a nuclear bomb went off in it. And some of his people thought his actions were impious or out of bounds. And he was eventually assassinated by his own sons. After the fall of the Assyrian Empire in 612 BC, a Chaldean named uh, Nabopolassar took the throne of Babylon and, through careful alliances, created the Neo-Babylonian Empire. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, succeeded him and renovated the city so that it became much larger and more beautiful than ever. Now, just some statistical things. Babylon is mentioned in the ESV version of the Bible, or translation, 275 times. That's fairly prolific. That's a lot of mentions. It is first mentioned in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. Uh, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. We heard his name earlier. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. How many of us have heard of the Tower of Babel? Most of us have. Well, Babylon and Babel are the same place. They're synonymous. Now, Babylon is mentioned in other Old Testament books, such as Daniel, the one that we're studying, and the other prophetic book in the Bible there in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. In fact, it appears 151 times in Jeremiah, and I find that to be very interesting. It's mentioned there in Jeremiah more than any other book. It also appears in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, in the book of Acts, in the epistle 1 Peter, and in the apocalyptic book, Revelation. But in Revelation, Babylon usually represents something bad. It doesn't necessarily represent a place, but it represents worldliness and ungodliness. Why? Because the city of Babylon had always been characterized by those things. It was very much a pagan city, a lot of false religion, and all of the, the, the kinds of things that would be associated with an ungodly city. So that's Babylon. Number five, Jerusalem. And we see that in verse one. The name Jerusalem occurs 806 times in the Bible, 660 times in the Old Testament, and 146 times in the New Testament. Additional references to the city occur in Scripture as synonyms. The first occurrence of Jerusalem is in Joshua 10, verse 1. But an allusion to Jerusalem appears in Genesis 14, verse 18, with the reference till Melchizedek, king of Salem. You just think of that word Jerusalem. Half of that word is the word Salem. So 
Melchizedek was likely the king over the earliest form of Jerusalem. Originally, Jerusalem was established as a Canaanite city um, by the Calcolithic period, which would be 4000 to 3100 BC. When the Israelites began to enter and conquer the land of Canaan after the Exodus and after their wilderness period, Jerusalem was controlled by a people group called the Jebusites. They called it Jebus or Jabus, which is short for the city of the Jebusites. 2 Samuel chapter 5 records King David's conquest of Jebus. Uh, it says, or actually, the narrative begins in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5, and it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Now, David and his men could not get over the wall and could not find another way into the city to attack it. And so they discovered a water shaft that led underneath the wall right into the city. And they entered through this water shaft and they they came up into the city, maybe into the middle of the city in a corner. I don't know how it worked out. But from that vantage point, they came out and stormed the city, took it by surprise. And they ultimately defeated the Jebusites and took control of the city. One of the first things that King David did was he changed the name from the city of the Jebusites to the city of King David, or the city of David. And I think that when you conquered a city back in those days, it was appropriate for you to name it after yourself, I guess, if you went through all that work. But anyways, he named it the city of David. As a side note to you, Jerusalem is the most fought-over city in world history, It is. I mean, you're talking about the the reign of King David, how he fought there, others before him fought there. There is fighting there today to control the Dome of the Rock and these various places or the city itself. And so it is the most fought over city in world history. I think that it's been invaded and conquered like 25 or 30 times. So a lot of history there with warfare and trying to take control of that city. Now, when King David What King David did was when he took over, he renamed the city, and then he transformed Jerusalem into the religious center of his kingdom by bringing into it the Ark of the Covenant. Although David was not allowed to construct a temple in Jerusalem, the arrival of the Ark forever linked Jerusalem with the religion of Yahweh, and we would call that religion Judaism. That's the religion of the Jews. Solomon, David's son, enhanced the religious dimension of the city by constructing the temple of the Lord, symbolizing the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem and in Israel. David began the process of establishing the royal and religious nature of Jerusalem, but it was Solomon who transformed the former Jebusite stronghold into a truly capital and national religious center. When Israel divided into two kingdoms after the death of Solomon, the southern kingdom of Judah retained Jerusalem and made it their capital. Let's look at number six, Shinar. Shinar, we see that name in verse two. That is a place. Uh, The Tigris and Euphrates rivers run parallel north to south and then come together and pour into the Persian Gulf. Between these two rivers, there is a piece of land known as the Plain of Shinar. Shinar is not a Hebrew word or phrase. 
It is from the ancient Semitic language, and it means land of two rivers. Makes sense, right? It is the land between two rivers, literally. It's very fertile. It's very pretty there, but it's flat. Shinar appears eight times in the Old Testament. The earliest reference to it is in Genesis 10.10, which describes Nimrod's kingdom. We looked at it earlier, right? It says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of what? Shinar. At one point, Shinar was ruled by a Hamite king, that's another people group, named Amraphel, who is mentioned in Genesis 14. Amraphel is the king who joined forces with other lesser kings and fought against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah before those cities and kingdoms were basically destroyed. During one battle, Amraphel and his allies prevailed and took some of the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah hostage. One of the hostages was Lot, the nephew of Abraham. When Abraham heard the news, he assembled his forces, 318 trained men. That was a pretty small army. And he set out to retrieve his loved one, his family member. When he caught up to the enemy forces, he divided his men into groups and attacked in the middle of the night when it was dark and the other camps, you know, the enemy camps were sleeping or resting. He attacked in the middle of the night. And with this small force and with a a much better strategy than his enemies had, he was able to defeat all four kings, including Amraphel and their armies, and he recovered Lot and the other hostages and all of the plunder and valuables. Now, all of this took place in the region of Shinar. Shinar is also called Southern Mesopotamia, or as we learned earlier, Babylonia. In the book of Daniel, Shinar and Babylonia are interchangeable. They are synonymous. Both names represent the territory and kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Number seven, Ashpenaz. We see that name, that's a person, in verse three. Ashpenaz was the chief eunuch under Nebuchadnezzar. He was Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch. Eunuchs in the Bible were usually castrated males or those incapable of reproduction due to a birth defect. The purpose of intentional castration was to induce impotence and remove sexuality. It was a common practice in ancient times Uh, for rulers to castrate some of their servants and or advisors in order to subdue and pacify them. It was especially common to castrate men who tended to the royal harem. See, many of these kings had vast harems, many, many wives and concubines, and some of them would place men in charge over these, these beautiful women. And the first thing they would do is castrate them so that there would be no temptation or anything like that. They could tend to these women without being attracted to them. Now, some suggest that, that since Daniel and his friends were placed under the authority and care of the chief eunuch, they too were made eunuchs. In other words, they too were castrated. Support for this position can be found in 2 Kings 20, verse 18, which is a prophecy that was given before this happened, before the exile. It reads, And some of your own sons, speaking of the the sons and people of Jerusalem, and some of your own sons 
who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That was a prophecy that was given before Daniel was carted off and his friends were carted off to Babylon. And it sounds like the person who was giving this prophecy was speaking of Daniel and his friends, if not more people than that. It's a great possibility that that's who the reference is to here. There is a great counterverse to this position in Ezekiel 14, 19 through 20. Speaking of the judgment that was about to come upon Jerusalem, Ezekiel wrote this. He said, If I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. The inference that we draw from this particular prophecy is that Daniel was going to have children one day, just as Noah and Job had children. So the question is, how can a eunuch, how can Daniel have children if he has been made a eunuch, if he had been castrated? He cannot. And so what's the issue here with Daniel being a eunuch or not? We don't know for sure if he was made a eunuch. He might have been, he might not have been. But I think the key to it is not to make too much of a point of that because we're not absolutely sure if he had been or if he had not been. We don't know. Now, as the chief eunuch, Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch, Ashpenaz was given a very, very important task. His task was to care for, educate, and prepare Daniel and his friends and the other princes and royalty and nobility for the king's service. And Ashpenaz is mentioned by name in Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 only. There is no other mention of him. So that's Ashpenaz. Number 8, Chaldeans. We see that in verse 4. The Chaldeans were the ancient people group who ruled Shinar during Daniel's day. They joined forces with the Medes to destroy the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, and bring the Assyrian Empire to an end. The Assyrian people have not had, if you know anything about history, the Assyrian people have not had a true homeland, state, or country since their fall. Okay, they, they, they don't have a country that they belong to even today because once their empire was brought to an end, they were removed from that area and they never recovered a state or country or kingdom for themselves. They became almost nomadic, living and popping up in different areas. Uh, the Chaldeans, uh, that ancient people group, they have Iraq today. Iraqis come from the ancient Chaldeans. So the ancient Chaldeans, whom we do not talk about any longer, they still have Iraq. Iraq, the, the ancient Persians, uh, they are from the region of Iran. So they, uh, in a way, have their own country still. And, and we know the Egyptians still have North Africa or Egypt. So those are three ancient people groups that still have territory, that still have countries and cities and places. But the Assyrians have no country that belongs specifically to them, and it's been this way ever since 612 B.C. The Chaldeans 
ruled Shinar from 612 B.C. to 539 B.C. and were succeeded by the Persians who easily conquered them shortly after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So basically, the Persians kind of brought an end to the Chaldeans for a season there. That's the Chaldeans. Number nine, and some of these will start moving faster, uh, we see the name Daniel. That's a person in verse 6. We learned a few things about Daniel last week, didn't we? He belonged to a royal family or nobility in Jerusalem. He was a teenager when he was taken away to Babylon with his friends. That's what we're reading about in our text. He was a prophet of God and his ministry lasted a very long time, 70 years. That's extraordinary. He penned or authored through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the book of Daniel, so he's the author. He was a high official under three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and King Darius. Now, and those are things that we studied last week. When Daniel's parents named him, they gave him a God-honoring name. This was a a common practice back in the, in the old days, back in the ancient days, back uh, way back. Parents would literally name their children and they would give them meaningful names. Uh, my name has meaning. Philip means lover of horses, and I don't even like horses, so I don't understand that. But back in these Hebrew t- traditions, people were given these, uh, these names that reflected godliness or they, they, they reflected a godly attribute or something like that. And, and Daniel's parents had great intentions for him when they named him because his name in Hebrew means God is my judge. Now, Daniel's friends were given similar names by their parents, and we will look at them in a moment. In other words, their parents had the same intentions for them, and we'll discover some of that in a moment. In verse 7, we read, however, that the chief eunuch gave Daniel and his friends new Chaldean names. Now, this was customary, you know, especially for the Babylonians. If they went in and conquered a people group, and they brought back some of that people group, and they wanted those uh, members to come into their, into their community and become maybe part of the king's service, it was customary for them to rename them with Chaldean names. Now, for Daniel and his friends, these new Chaldean names uh, represented Chaldean deities or false gods. Daniel was renamed Belshazzar. In Chaldee, that's the language they wrote and spoke, Bel, B-E-L, means Lord. And in Babylonian religion, the god Marduk was believed to be Lord. In fact, the Chaldeans thought of Marduk as their Lord and Savior, very similar to how we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Marduk was their Lord, so to speak. And he was also the patron god of the city of Babylon, which means there was a lot of imagery depicting his image throughout the city. He was the god of that city, if you will. There is an ancient uh, relief at the Detroit Institute of Art that depicts Marduk as a scale-clad dragon with a snake's head. Now, the second half of Daniel's new name, uh, Belshazzar, has to do with protecting the king. So the full meaning of his name would be, Lord protects the king. 
And as I said, Lord here would be a reference to Marduk, the Babylonian Lord. Uh, Number 10, we're looking at another person here, Hananiah, and that's in verse 6. Hananiah was one of Daniel's buddies who had been exiled with him. He was also nobility or royalty. In Hebrew, Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. What a tremendous name this guy had. Uh, You know, Hananiah's parents had realized that their God was a God of grace and that he graciously provided or gave to them or loved them or forgave them or what have you. And they thought to name their son after that characteristic of God. So they had great intentions for this young man. They basically named him Jehovah is gracious. In verse 7, the chief eunuch renamed him Shadrach, which means command of Aku. In Babylonian religion, Aku was the moon god or the god of the moon. So they changed his name to the command of the moon god. Number 11, Mishael, another person, that's verse 6. Mishael was also one of Daniel's good friends who had been exiled with him. He was nobility as well or royalty. In Hebrew, Mishael means who is like God. Again, we see that Mishael's parents had great intentions for him. Uh, they, they wanted him to be like God, not in God's power or anything like that, or a deity, but maybe to bear some of his characteristics, characteristics to be forgiving, to be generous, to be merciful, to be kind, or what have you. So they had these great intentions for Mishael. They wanted him to be like God. In verse 7, the chief eunuch renamed him Meshach, which means, who is like Aku. So, they changed his name from who is like God, meaning Jehovah, to who is like the moon god, the Babylonian moon god. Apparently, Mishael, or Meshach, if you will, was mysterious like the moon, like Aku, the moon god of Babylon. I don't know. Let's look at our last person. Number 12, Azariah. Verses, uh, verse 6, actually. Azariah was the third friend of Daniel, and he was obviously exiled with the others. He was royalty as well, or nobility, like Daniel and the others. In Hebrew, Azariah means Jehovah helps. Jehovah helps. So, obviously, his parents had the same intention for him. They believed their God was a God who helps. They named their son after that characteristic of God. This is a godly Hebrew name. In verse 7, the chief eunuch renamed him Abednego. Abednego. This name is a little more challenging to decipher or to break down. Abed means servant. But we find no Babylonian god named Nego, N-E-G-O. For the name to be authentically referring to a Babylonian deity, like the other names do, it should read Abed-Nebo. So the G would be turned or changed to a B, Abed-Nebo. Because the Babylonians had a god named Nebo, and he was allegedly the god of wisdom. Abed, Nebo, would mean servant of Nebo 
or servant of the God of wisdom. So, what happened here in our text? Did Daniel change something up about the spelling? Did he make a mistake or something of that nature? Did he misspell his friend's name? Well, he certainly misspelled it, but I don't think he made a mistake. I think he did it intentionally. No devout Israelite would ever refer to his self or to herself or to his friend or to her friend as a servant of a false god. To do so would be the the height of impiety. It would be blasphemous. I believe Daniel deliberately changed the original spelling from Abed-Nabo to Abed-Nago to avoid making such an impious mistake. Again, Abed-Nabo means servant of Nabo. That's a false god. Like guarantee you, Azariah would not have appreciated being called that. He would not have wanted to be called a servant of a false god, a servant of a false god of wisdom, a servant of a Babylonian god. There's no way he'd go for that, and there's no way that Daniel would want to call him that. Now, so he made an adjustment. He changed it from Nabo to Nago. So it reads Abed-Nago. And what does Abed-Nago mean? It means servant of light. Azariah would have had no problem with that name or title at all. So let's recap what we've heard so far. What have we covered? We have covered some of the primary people and places of the book of Daniel from verses 1 through 7. We looked at Jehoiakim. We looked at Judah. We looked at Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Jerusalem, Shinar, Ashpenaz, Chaldeans, Daniel, Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and we looked at Azariah, Abednego. Now next Sunday, Lord willing, we will dive back into verses 1 through 7 and begin to exposit them in some depth, line by line. But for now, we do have a better foundation. We have a sense of who these people and places are, and they're going to keep coming up in the book as we move forward. So this was essential for us to do this. So the great question becomes, what can we take away from today's lesson? What can we apply? What can we walk away with? There is a thought that kept coming into my mind this week as I read this passage over and over and over. And I just want to say that reading Daniel and these passages over and over and over is very, very good for me and it's very, very good for you. Because God brings things to our mind and he, and he introduces us to new people and, and then he, 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 he just helps us to see who's here and what's happening and what's going on. We become familiar with the people and places and all of that. And so it's, it's a very, very good thing to just read these texts over and over and over. And as I, I did that this week, before I even wrote a single letter or word or sentence in this sermon, I had this thought that kept coming back to me over and over and over, and it is this. God brought judgment against his people in Jerusalem, and that's what we're reading about in our chapter. He brought judgment against his people in Jerusalem, in Judah, if you will, because they pulled a Romans 1. 
They had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That is the definition of idolatry. Idolatry happens whenever we exchange the glory of the immortal God for, you know, imagery, for things that have been created, for money, for other people, for possessions, uh, for leisure, for comfort, for security. Anytime we exchange the glory of the immortal God for things that have been created, we're committing idolatry. And that is exactly what the, the people of that kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, had done. And it's what we have all done, uh, in a sense, and what we continue to wrestle with. Now, God appointed Nebuchadnezzar as his rod of discipline, and he sent him to conquer the sacred city and carry away many of its inhabitants and valuables. That is what we're reading. That is what we're studying. And here's one of the things that just kept coming to mind. Among the exiled were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These men were innocent of the crime of adultery or of idolatry. They were loyal to God. They, that, when, when Babylon came and invaded, these men weren't found to be like everyone else, worshiping idols and themselves. These men were loyal to God. These men were committed to God. These men were holy. They were set apart. They were living out their high calling as Christians, if you will. And yet, they were still carried away with everyone else, with the unfaithful and those who basically deserved discipline, those who deserved punishment. And more than that, Daniel and his buddies were renamed after false deities and they were probably castrated. How terrible! And the question becomes, why did God allow this to happen to them? Doesn't it seem unfair or unjust or unrighteous to, you know, to submit the good guys to the same stuff that the bad guys are dealing with and going through? Well, does this text and all of this have to do with fairness to begin with? You know what, in order to understand what's going on here and why Daniel and these good guys were carried away with the bad guys, we've got to understand a few things here. And, and first, we, we need to understand that what was happening with Daniel and his friends, it wasn't about punishment, but about purpose. These guys were carried away with everyone else so that God could relocate and use them in an unreached land which was steeped in devastating false religion. You know, in, in many ways, Jerusalem had become steeped in false religion, but it wasn't nearly as bad as Babylon. Now, God sent, and here's the purpose, God sent Daniel and his buddies to Babylon for what purpose? To bear witness to the glory and to the greatness and to the gospel of God. So we can look at the exile of Daniel and his friends 
as, as being a purpose of God, and it would be a, the purpose of missions work to spread the glory, greatness, and gospel of God. In fact, the book of Daniel confronts us with more evidence of the timing of Messiah's coming than any, any other Old Testament book. So we can easily say that the book of Daniel and Daniel's message to the Babylonians, to these kings and all these people, it was essentially the gospel. He was proclaiming before them when Messiah was going to come. And we'll learn about that as we move further and further into the book. This wasn't about punishment for these men. And even if it had been about discipline or punishment, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Never forget that. But the reality here is that God had a purpose for Daniel and his friends. He was going to use them. And that is why he carried them away with everyone else. And when they got there, he began to use them. He did use them as we move through the book, we will discover. Now it would have been easy for Daniel to say in the midst of his circumstances, why am I here? Why am I going through this? Why are you doing this to me, God? I don't deserve this. It would have been easy for him to ask those questions. And I think that if I were in his shoes back in those days, I would have been saying, why is this happening to me? I've been following your will and loving you and pursuing your will and trying to walk in holiness. And I've been preaching the gospel and doing all the things you want me to do. I've been staying away from the idolatry. What is going on here, Lord? I don't think I deserve this. I would ask that question if I'd been in his shoes. The interesting thing about the book of Daniel is that we see no such questions on any of the pages. All we see in the book of Daniel is a man on a mission. Now, Job, on the other hand, is a different story. Catastrophe struck Job, and he pretty much complained about it for 40-plus chapters. But I can guarantee you, if any of us had been in his shoes, we would have complained for an additional 40 chapters. Job would be, instead of 40-something chapters, it would be 80-something. And here's something that we must realize and remember. When we enter difficult trials and difficult seasons like Daniel did, We need to be like Daniel. Instead of asking why, why God, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? Instead of maybe railing against God or asking why over and over and trying to get our mind around the why, I think we need to ask what? What do you want me to do while I'm in the middle of this, God? What is my purpose during this difficult season? What do you want me to accomplish for you? What do you want me to learn? It's far better for us to ask what than why when we find ourselves in difficult situations, difficult seasons. But we always go right to the why because we, we, we believe that we don't deserve what's happening to us or we believe we need uh, some sort of great explanation as to what's happening. I mean, that was Job's problem. Instead of doing this to ourselves and, 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 you know, and doing this to others, and why, 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 we should say, what? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? What is my purpose here? Because, as I say all the time, God wastes nothing. He brings us through difficult seasons, sometimes for discipline, 
but sometimes because he has some other alternate, alternate purpose in mind that he wants us to achieve something for him or to learn something from him. How many of us have gone through a difficult season? We had really no idea what was going on, but years later we look back and we say, now I know what that was about. Now I know what he wanted to teach me. Now I know what he wanted me to accomplish. You know? Now I, 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 I know the what and I even know the why. That's something that we must understand. It wasn't about punishment. It was about purpose. And even if it had been about punishment, even if it had been about discipline, if Daniel and his friends had been like everyone else and under the the rod of God's discipline, God disciplines those whom he loves. What kind of father would God be to his children, us, if when we get wayward and go astray, if he didn't discipline us? That would be a father who truly doesn't care about us because he lets us go off into destruction. But that's not the case with Daniel and his friends. It was about purpose. There's a second thing that you must know. Um, Most of us are probably familiar with the promise that Jesus made. Jesus said at the end of Matthew 28, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This was true for Daniel and his friends. God went with them to Babylon. You see, God didn't send them and exile them to Babylon with the rest of everyone, and and then God just kind of hid out in his heavenly home. God actually went with them into Babylon. He was present there with them the whole time. How do I know this? I know this because when you look at the book of Daniel, you discover that God manifested his presence and power in their presence through miracles, through dreams, and through prophetic revelations in fact christ was even seen in babylon in the furnace right that's a christophany he was the fourth man there in that furnace and we read about that in daniel 3 25 god was with them and this is why they had such an amazing ministry and this is why they had great boldness. Daniel's one of the most bold men in the entire scripture. This is why they had great courage. They had the courage of the apostle Paul. And why did Paul have it? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why did these guys have this boldness and courage like Paul? They had the presence of God right there. God was with them. And this is also why they had joy. Because to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of joy. We need to remember something about this when we enter difficult trials and seasons we must remember that we are not alone we must remember that the holy spirit is with us and in us even when people abandon us they walk away they desert us and that happened to jesus even when people that we love pass away loved ones you know family members close friends co-workers Even when we mess up and sin, Christ never leaves us and he never forsakes us. Jesus said, I am with you always. There's no special clause there. It doesn't say, I'm with you only when you behave right or I'm I'm with you only when this happens or only when the stars are aligned. It says, I am with you always. Jesus is always with us in the good times and in the bad times. 
So don't forget, beloved, there is always a purpose behind what you're going through. And don't forget that God is always with us. Amen.